Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter. So it wasn't that long ago that conventional wisdom had most of us thinking that any gains Democrats made in the Senate in 2020 would be nominal. But unexpected events over the last six months has turned a long shot into a very real possibility. Democrats have a very good chance of taking control in the Senate this November. The Trump administration's failure to handle the coronavirus crisis and provide a national plan for recovery, while simultaneously stoking racial tensions at a moment of national reckoning, has caused the president's poll numbers to sour. And it's put states that were once considered relatively safe for the GOP in danger. One of those states is Iowa. Donald Trump easily carried the state in 2016, and earlier this year, freshman Republican Senator Joni Ernst looked like she'd have a pretty easy path to re-election. Not anymore. The most recent polling in the state has Trump ahead of Biden by just one point, and Ernst narrowly trailing her Democratic challenger, Teresa Greenfield, by three points. Back in her successful 2014 campaign, Ernst sold herself as an outsider who would put a stop to D.C.'s culture of spending. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. So when I get to Washington, I'll know how to cut pork. This year, Greenfield is trying to turn those ads back on the Republican senator. And I know firsthand, you don't stop giving people a hand up so you can give a hand out to the super wealthy and the special interests. In Iowa, whether you live in a small town or a big city, we're all getting the short end of that stick. Joni Ernst said she'd be different. Washington's full of big spenders. Let's make them squeal. Listen, folks, she didn't castrate anyone. I caught up with Teresa Greenfield, who spoke with me from her kitchen table in Des Moines. One of the things I know about Iowans is that they're very independent-minded. I think it comes from that, their agricultural roots. You know, farmers are always very independent. And Senator Ernst, in running for this office, really promised Iowans she would be different and she'd be independent. And her ad was all about making them squeal. And I don't think Iowans feel like anybody's squealing in Washington, but they are definitely squealing back here at home. I think some of that has been because she has joined party leadership and she's become part of the problem. She sides with Mitch McConnell, votes with party leaders, you know, 95% of the time probably. And um, that's just not what Iowans are looking for. And I got in this race really to put Iowans first. And one of the things that I have done is made a decision not to accept one dime of corporate PAC donations. And Senator Ernst has accepted millions. Um, And it's a real sharp contrast between the two of us because I'm not going to be beholden to those corporate PAC donors. And there's a lot of issues that Iowans would like a voice on. And Senator Ernst has put her corporate donors first. So, for example, you know, she voted for a fossil fuel lobbyist to head the EPA, and the EPA has issued 85 ethanol waivers, and that has been devastating to our biofuels and ethanol industry here. Iowa State estimates we're going to take about a $2.56 billion hit here in 2020, and yet she has accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Exxons, the Marathons, the Chevrons, those big oil corporate PACs, putting their interests ahead of corn producers and biofuel ethanol producers here. Those impacts, they just filter right on down to our main streets and our manufacturers. So in Iowa today, 
you know, net farm income is down 75% since 2013. Bankruptcy rates are an eight-year high. Uh, folks are squealing. She, of course, the Senator Ernst, that is, has pushed back on the corporate interest criticism that you just gave here. And she's put up an ad recently arguing that you may not be taking corporate PAC money, but you are taking lots and lots of money, donations from lobbyists who lobby for corporate interests. It may not be the corporation or the industry itself, but there are people who work in that industry who are donating to you. Well, there's no question. There's all kinds of money in our election system today. And I thought it was really important to draw a line. And I drew the line at corporate PAC donations. Um, And that's exactly what I'm doing. And of course, Senator Ernst, she doesn't have a line. And I think it's so important for our democracy that um, on the farm, Amy, my dad always said, there's no boy jobs and there's no girl jobs. There's just jobs that need to get done. Um, And so, yeah, I helped with the crop dusting business, but I also had to help shovel the ucky stuff in the barn. Um, But my very first plan or job to get done that I published was to end political corruption, was to end corporate PAC donations, end dark money groups if we can, or require that they disclose uh, who is donating to these groups, end Citizens United would be, you know, fantastic, um, and many other things. And so while Senator Ernst is complaining in her ads, uh, the bottom line is not only does she take corporate PAC donations, she has never supported any reforms that would uh, get this kind of money out of our politics. And I've drawn a line in the sand and said, for this election, I'm not taking any corporate PAC donations. All right. So the people who are donating to you, even if they're lobbyists for those industries, you're saying they don't have any influence on the way that you may look at issues? Well, I think that the reason I drew the line where I did is it is really clear that corporate PACs, they donate to elections for influence. And um, again, there is certainly all kinds of money in this system. Um, And that's where I've gotten started, along with putting out a pretty clear plan of the kind of action I would take as I was the next senator to reduce this kind of political corruption and ensure that the voices of Iowans are first and foremost. Let's talk about Iowa for the last few years here. Tom Harkin was a longtime Democratic senator in that state, but he was the last Democratic senator. And since 2006, uh, Democrats have really come up short in statewide races, whether it's for the Senate or the governor's uh, mansion. What um, What's different this year and what makes you different this year? Uh, You know, I think that, uh, one, I've never been elected to office. Again, I uh, decided to come off the sidelines and get involved um, because I think we need different kinds of candidates. And uh, right or wrong, um, we need some different kind of candidates, and it takes people stepping up to run. And I got in this race uh, because of the issues, whether it's related to Um, growing up during the farm crisis and knowing that the decisions in Washington really affected our lives, whether it's being a young widow and relying on Social Security, knowing the decisions in Washington related to Social Security really affects people's lives, and the list goes on. And I got in this race, and um, it's been wonderful. Again, I don't see Iowans as a particular voter. They're friends and their neighbors and their family members. They're people that may or agree or disagree. I see them really as independent. 
And um, I was, has a long history of sort of being in that kind of swing state. And so I just work hard to take every bit of my scrappy farm girl, you know, out and fight in every county and every precinct and ask for every vote, um, have that respect to be asking for every vote. And I just see that as different. Hmm. When it comes to this U.S. Senate race, though, you know, Senator Joni Ernst has just left the state behind. She's no friend to our farmers. We have 85 ethanol waivers. Look, a, a bushel of corn today was around three bucks. And mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't cover input costs, and it certainly doesn't buy new shoes in the fall. Um, so that industry is struggling, and it filters to the rest of our industries. When it comes to healthcare, the number one topic Iowans have been talking to me about. And before COVID, I had done uh, over 100 public events around this state. We're Zooming at this point in time around the state. But, um, but it's the number one topic. Senator Ernst you know, voted to gut protections for pre-existing conditions to end the Affordable Care Act. She refuses to oppose the federal lawsuit that could dismantle it. And one of the most devastating impacts if the ACA is dismantled is if we lose Medicaid expansion. Um, it has been a lifeline for hospitals and particularly rural hospitals. You know, family and friends that I know across the state, they, many of them already drive, you know, 20 and 30 miles to get groceries, to go to their church, to get healthcare services. And if their hospitals close, they're going to drive 60 miles or 60 minutes or worse yet, you know, they won't get the care they need. And so on these really basic issues, common sense issues where Iowans think we should get results, uh, Senator Ernst has left them behind. And to me, that's what's changed. They have a senator that does not put their interests first. Let's talk about that. You know, you talked about the independent streak of Iowa voters and how you can speak to that. So if you win, you go to Washington, and there is going to be a lot of pressure on you um, from the party if uh, there's a new president, his name's Joe Biden, and what his priorities are. Can you talk about an example or two of positions that you've either seen Biden or national Democrats take that you say, you know what, that's not, I can't do that. That's not good for Iowa. And I'm going to just say no to the Democrats on this one. You know, the thing that I probably have been the most frustrated about, and I want to say, let's get done, is the lack of an robust infrastructure package in this country, and certainly its effects on Iowa. We are, here's a sexy fact, <laughs> we are 50th in the nation in bridge suitability. And I spent about 14 years of my career working in community planning at the local level, neighborhood groups, planning commissions, city councils, town boards, and you learn pretty quickly. You know, a pothole, it's not Republican or Democrat. It's a problem that needs to be solved. Well, these bridges all over our state, they're not Republican or Democratic bridges. They are infrastructure that needs repair, replacement, upgrading and everything from bridges to broadband internet and of course COVID has certainly again exposed the inequities of those that have access to high-speed internet and those that don't Um, we need to invest in a robust infrastructure package for Iowans and for our country I uh, visited with a a young family down south of Des Moines in a a southern county Um, she's a graphic designer Prior to COVID, she was driving into the city to work quite a long ways. 
Uh, but from working from home, she's been unable to do work because she does not have high-speed internet uh, at their little acreage to be able to upload and download these large files. And so we need to have this kind of investment, um, uh, not only to fix and repair, but for the future and make sure that all Iowans can compete um, in the, the marketplace. Right. I mean, I've heard Biden suggesting some of the the same things, but there are other issues, whether it's on the environment, energy production, any of the other issues that have been sort of debated throughout the Democratic primary. And and were any of those ones where you'd say, you know, I'm going to have to take a pass on that? Well, I think that we absolutely have to confront climate change. Mm -hmm. And I hear about it as I travel the state. I once know what climate change looks like here in the state. It's, It's a flooding we've had in southeast Iowa and southwest Iowa. It's uh, the uh, additional rain um, that comes in three-inch waves, that has, it's a narrowing of our planting season, it's higher temperatures, higher humidity. There's, there's lots of talk about it here, and every meeting I go to, people are talking about it. Um, but, you know, I don't support the Green New Deal that I know a lot of Democrats across the country talk about. I, I don't know what it's going to cost, and I don't know what it means for Iowa. Mm-hmm. But I do know um, we've got a lot of opportunity here in Iowa uh, to take climate action, whether it's to um, grow our wind energy uh, industry. Right now, 40% of the electricity uh, here in Iowa comes from wind energy. And I believe, uh, I, I thought I understood that uh, Vice President, President Biden's plan is to work towards 100% electricity by wind energy. That's a real opportunity for Iowa. Um, and so I want to take climate action starts by getting back into some of our international accords, working to lower our carbon footprint, but it also includes focusing on how we grow jobs right here in Iowa and do some of the things we do really well. Um, and we've had a lot of success with renewable energies and the green economy. And I frankly think Iowa can be a leader on that as we move towards 2050 and beyond. Let's talk about the impact that the pandemic has taken on your state and thinking about what folks in Iowa need the most, do you think, from this newest stimulus package that is making its way through Congress? I mean, what is an an absolute has to be in there for Iowa? Well, I'm glad it's about time. You know, the Senate got back to work on this. Um, I've certainly been calling for more relief for hardworking Iowans. Uh, for months, that that's for sure. And we have been uh, holding roundtables, Zooming, but also have been out meeting with small business owners, and they're not out of the woods yet. Uh, many of them have told me their cash flow is still down 60%. They haven't been able to hire back their workers. And I've worked much of my career in small businesses from, you know, running bean walking crews back on the farm to working my way up to being um, the president of a family owned commercial real estate company where we had eight employees. And I know I was a small, a state of small towns and small businesses and our employees become like family and we want to take care of one another and folks uh, need more help here. And I want to make sure that we are helping our workers. You know, for me, it includes extending expanded unemployment insurance. I know that's expiring. We need more direct payments for workers. Um, we need to expand paid sick leave for all of our workers. People should not have to choose between going to work sick 
or staying home to take care of themselves um, or others in their family. Uh, the small businesses absolutely want uh, more paycheck protection program uh, opportunities um, it, so they can keep those lights on. I know how hard that is. Um, but we've also got to invest in our state and local governments. You know, these are essential public workers like our first responders and our public health staff, sanitation workers and others. Uh, we need them on the job taking care of us. And so we've got to uh, provide support for them. Uh, we got to make sure that our schools are getting resources and support they need. Uh, we all want our schools to reopen, um, sure, but it's got to be done in a safe and healthy manner and um, with clear guidance from public health experts and how they can reopen. But it's going to take some additional resources, I think, to try to get that done. And how concerned are you that you your voters, people you definitely know, want to vote for you, are worried about physically getting to the polls because of COVID, or that they may be unaware of how to vote by mail? What are you doing about those things? Well, in the June 2nd primary, um, uh, the Secretary of State sent an absentee ballot request form to every active registered voter in the state. And what we got from that experiment was an overwhelming, record-shattering turnout in the primary. Um, and so when Iowans are given that kind of opportunity to vote, they really took advantage of it in the primary. And I think just about 80% of the primary voters were absentee ballot. So we are focusing heavily on getting the absentee ballots vote out. Uh, the Secretary of State will be sending out again uh, for the November election an absentee ballot request form to every active registered voter in Iowa. Um, and that is the right decision. Um, your vote is your voice. And we're going to be working hard to chase those ballot forms, uh, chase those ballots, and make sure that certainly our base and, and, and voters um, are taking advantage of that and know how to turn in, fill out their ballots and get them turned in. Well, Teresa Greenfield, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me. Please stay safe out there on the campaign trail, virtual and otherwise. Absolutely. Amy, it's been a joy. And uh, thanks for letting me zoom in today. Of course. Um, you be well, and I look forward to further conversations with you. Teresa Greenfield is the Democratic candidate for Senate in Iowa. On next week's show, I'll be joined by Joni Ernst, the incumbent Republican senator of Iowa. On this week's On the Media, does the rise of X signal the fall of traditional right-wing outlets? You don't have to have this website and a link that people have to click on. You can just say stuff and you can get attention. You know, you don't need to be Breitbart to do that anymore. Also, what does decolonization really mean? On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This week, President Trump announced new guidelines for school reopenings, and he said that public schools and coronavirus hotspots could delay reopening for a few weeks, but ultimately that decision will fall to the governors. 
He's also asking Congress for $105 billion in education funding and that the money should only go to schools that decide to reopen in person. If schools do not reopen, the funding should go to parents to send their child to public, private, charter, religious, or homeschool. Like every other state in the country, Iowa is grappling with how they'll handle the start of the academic school year. Earlier this month, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds announced limitations on remote learning and mandated that at least 50% of the time students spend on learning core subjects must take place in person. Here's what some parents in Iowa had to say about that. If you have parents that are working full time, I don't know how you have kids 12 and under stay responsible for as much education as happens in school because parents are going back to work and they have to go back to work. Uh, We've already been discussing the possibility of keeping our kids home next year um, just because, you know, we have three kids and we know how gross they are. (laughs) And, um, And we also know how overcrowded the building is. The tape is courtesy of my next guest, Grant Gerlach, a reporter for Iowa Public Radio. I spoke with Grant earlier this week to get a sense for how Iowa schools are dealing with Governor Reynolds's new rules especially as some districts had already put together plans for remote learning. Well, she says she was influenced by uh, a couple things. One is guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they've said that schools need to have students in person as much as possible um, because they need to learn and it's easier for them to learn that way, but also in large part because of the impact of isolation on children, on their social and emotional development And school is an important way to detect potential abuse or potential mental health problems that students are having. And so for those reasons, they say it's important for students to be in school. So that was one reason she gave that she wanted to push schools to have more classes in person if they were planning on being largely virtual. Another is that the state legislature passed a law in late June That included a clause that says schools can only use primarily remote learning if the governor says they can, basically, if she gives a disaster proclamation, giving them permission. And she says she's giving the proclamation and she's not giving them permission unless they get it from the State Department of Education and the Department of Public Health. So they didn't expect to have to go through those hurdles Mm -hmm. in order to adjust their return to learn plans. But now they do. And so they're going back to the drawing board in in several cases. And Governor Reynolds has been hesitant throughout this crisis to do much mandating. I don't think there's a mask mandate. I know she didn't want to close down a lot of Iowa, have a shutdown altogether. So is this sort of consistent with the way she's been governing at this moment? So she's never issued sort of a blanket mask order. In fact, she has told counties and cities that they cannot make their own requirements for mask wearing in public. And some cities are deciding to go ahead with that anyway, setting up a potential legal challenge on that issue. And she never made a blanket stay-at-home order, even though she had many restrictions in place for restaurants and other businesses. And once she moved to reopen the economy, she has not gone back, even though the number of cases has been rising in Iowa again. Mm. And Iowa was on a list, a White House document that was obtained by the Center for Public Integrity that put Iowa as one of 18 states on a red zone list. 
because of the rate of infections recently. But she has not moved off of her path toward reopening the economy. And I think schools are part of that. She wants to see schools reopen. It's another sign that the state is moving forward in terms of, um, as she puts it, living with the virus, finding ways to sort of live through this pandemic. I've been listening to your reporting and reading other reporting around the state, though, that a number of school districts had already established a plan for how they were going to deal with teaching, educating students, especially in these early days when schools reopen. Do they just have to scrap all those plans right now? Or are they trying to get some sort of waiver or sue the governor to do things the way that they had already planned on doing? They do not want to scrap their plans. So just to give a couple examples, in Iowa City, they had planned to be all virtual to start the year, at least into October. In Des Moines, they sort of had a mixed plan. Des Moines is the largest district in the state. Elementary and middle school students were going to go to school two days per week and learn from home three days a week. So that's less than 50%. Mm. At the high school level, students were going to be in school one day per week. And part of the reason for that is space. They want to be able to limit the number of students in a classroom to have them spread out because that's what CDC guidelines and other public health guidelines state is that you should try to create distance between people if you're going to be indoors especially. And if they are required to bring more students in, those space requirements are not there. So where are they supposed to put people? They're running out of room. They don't want to have to change that. They don't want to have to create more risk than they feel like they should have to. So far, what they're planning on doing is, well, nothing to start. (laughs) they, They are going to the state and requesting waivers. We don't know what the state's response to that is yet. In a document from the State Department of Education, they said they don't plan on granting any extended waivers for whole districts to do what they please. They only plan on issuing temporary waivers for perhaps even just a student, a classroom, and then if they decide that it's appropriate, a a whole school building or a whole school district. We haven't gotten to the point of lawsuits yet. The State Education Association, the largest educators union in the state, is circulating a petition to try to push the governor to rescind her proclamation, and we'll see where that goes. There's also a, a protest planned a car caravan that will stretch from the governor's mansion to the state capitol, teachers and other supporters in their cars, trying to show support for giving schools more flexibility. I have to believe parents must be feeling incredibly frustrated right now. It's all very confusing for parents to figure out, and teachers really, but Mm -hmm. I've heard from parents who are looking for potentially another district, maybe a private school where they can send their kids because they want them to be in school five days a week. Other parents plan on keeping their kids home just because they're not comfortable with the potential risk of exposing their kids or exposing their family to a coronavirus infection. We also know that Des Moines is um, the one city in the state where the majority of its students in public schools are uh, students of color. And we know that African-American Latino populations are being disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus. Is this something that the Des Moines School District is talking about as they are trying to put together 
their own plans for reopening safely? And has that data influenced at all the chances that they will get a waiver from the Iowa governor to to be more flexible in their plans? On the second point, I'm not sure it's going to influence the state's response or not, but it's something the administration and the school board are very aware of, and they do bring this up in their meetings when they're talking about the school's plans in a couple senses. They bring it up in terms of um, planning so that those families aren't at an even greater exposure to the virus because of kids going to and from school. And also um, in the sense that those parents are more likely to need a place for their kids to go. So there's sort of this this tension between um, kids needing a place where they can can learn if their parents have to go to work, which is more likely uh, in those communities in the city, and uh, and not creating a greater risk for those families. So that's part of what the district is dealing with when they say students will be at school for two days a week. They're still trying to plan on what happens the rest of the week. Could they provide another space where those kids could go and have some support, you know, some kind of daycare setting? Um, but they don't have a solid plan for that yet. Part of what they're dealing with, again, is just a space to do that. So it's on their minds. I'm not sure they have a, a real solid answer to it. We've talked a lot about uh, Des Moines and Iowa City. I'm wondering how smaller cities and towns around Iowa are reacting to this. And I'm I'm thinking in particular about some of these areas where the outbreaks have occurred in and around cities with meatpacking plants and whether that has been a serious question raised about this plan to uh, to implement the governor's school rules. Yeah, in those communities, I think a lot of the concerns are similar to what we were just discussing in terms of what kids are going to be exposed to and what they're going to take home mm-hmm. if they go to school and come into contact with the virus. But in, in large part, outside of Des Moines and Iowa City, for the schools that have actually said what they plan to do, because many still haven't come out with concrete plans, um, many of them won't be largely affected. There were a lot of districts who were already coming out and saying that they were planning on bringing students back full-time and and also, in many cases, providing a virtual option for families to use. And uh, for them, this proclamation doesn't have a whole lot of consequence except possibly for how they decide to react when the virus does crop up in a school. Um, The Department of Education says they'll be coming out with guidance on that in another week or so, uh, but there's only a few weeks until school starts. So they're going to be working on short notice in terms of how they're supposed to respond if a student or a teacher or a school starts to show a lot of symptoms of COVID-19. And this is something that's been frustrating for a lot of districts because before the governor came out with this proclamation, they were working through all these issues on their own. They weren't just, you know, standing flat-footed waiting for someone to to give them guidance. They were working through it with county public health officials and within their own districts. And now 
they have to work with the state and it takes away a lot of the flexibility and local input that they were expecting to have on the process. And, and just to be clear, this proclamation doesn't give many other guidelines. I mean, for if you're a school that is trying to figure out how to make this work, how helpful is the proclamation in giving you ways to, to do this in a way that works for your individual school? And, you know, you can sort of follow along some bullet points on how to actually do this. Uh, very little has come from the state on that. Um, even earlier, the Department of Education had put out a, a list of guidelines for schools to consider when they reopen. And it, it was another frustrating moment for many schools because um, the state recommended against requiring masks and face coverings. Uh, and some schools were planning on, on requiring them, and they still can choose to do that on their own, but they were looking for the state to back them up on it. Right. Um, it also doesn't recommend screening students or staff members when they come in the building, and it had very little in terms of concrete, here's what a classroom should look like, here's what a school bus could look like, here's how students could be spread out, here's what a cafeteria could look like, all these different places in the school where uh, administrators are trying to to figure out how things can look and how they can have school safely. The Department of Education didn't really weigh in on that. So they were working on those details on their own as well. Grant Gerlach is a reporter for Iowa Public Radio. That's all for us today. If you haven't heard it already, be sure to check out our other podcast this week, where we remember Congressman John Lewis and look at the changing role of the Congressional Black Caucus. Now for the credits. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our editor at the WNYC Studios this week. Debbie Daughtry, who's our board op, and Vince Fairchild, our director and sound designer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.